Right. Um, I mentioned earlier that I'm, I'm the youth minister. I work with our teenagers and their families. And there's this guy named uh, John Acuff. And he used to write this blog uh, that kind of playfully poked fun at Christian and church culture. Um, and on December 28th in 2014, his article title was The Sunday After Christmas, a.k.a. Let's Have the Youth Minister Preach Today Sunday. All right? And in the article, he writes, why will this happen today? Because, as I've written about before, it's the Sunday after a major holiday. Attendance will be light. The senior pastor might be on vacation. Anything goes. Well, here we are. And uh, it's about to get weird, okay? Because I have discovered something unsettling that I am going to share with you this morning. It may be a bit uh, shocking or disturbing, so please brace yourselves. And it is the truth that birds aren't real. Birds aren't real. Uh, Back in the 60s, it turns out the government began exterminating and then replacing all birds with these sophisticated robotic replicas used as a massive surveillance system. That's how they watch and track us today. And now there have been some who've known about this conspiracy for years, going back to at least 1976, but the proliferation of social media has finally given the truth an outlet, you know, to reach people. And so all across our country, there are bird truthers doing their part to spread the message. Um, and so I, I, th- there's an interview from 2019 um, that, that I want to show you to just get a little, little idea of what we're talking about here. I consider myself to be an average American. I wake up in the morning, wash my car, and I have an avid disbelief in avian beings. Maybe you've seen the billboard near the Highland Strip or heard the story on Wednesdays Live at 9. A campaign called Birds Are Not Real brings its efforts to the Mid-South. And this morning, we are joined by one of the messengers of the movement. Peter McIndoe is here to tell us how this all came about. We want to emphasize you were not the founder No, ma'am. We put the billboard here because we wanted to bring it to the biggest city in the world, you know, the Paris of the West. Uh, So we brought it to Memphis, Tennessee. From 1959 through 2001, the government mercilessly genocided over 12 billion birds and simultaneously replaced them with surveillance drones in disguise. Sometimes I'll travel internationally, go to the Himalayas just to breathe the drone-free air. So this is really satire. I mean, you don't really believe that that happened, correct? This is a satirical uh, campaign to make the point that what? <laughs> you're, you're looking at me like, no, it's not satire. I really do believe this. <laughs> Honestly, it's kind of offensive. Um, okay. We do not find this to be a humorous issue. This is serious. This is life or death. This movement came about in 1976. Um, just to avoid any, you know, liberal media hit job. Since the billboard went up in Memphis, uh, crime has actually dropped by 43%. We're expecting the key to the city at any time from the mayor. There's been a reaction of supporters and loyal bird truthers coming out, um, saluting, bowing. It's almost become almost like a, like a sacred pilgrimage. This billboard means more to me than my own life. All right, Peter, we appreciate you being with us this morning. Thank you very much. Birdsaren'treal.com. I consider my... Birdsaren'treal.com. Well, there you are. You know, there you have it. Uh, You know the truth now. Scary stuff, right? It does help explain some things. I mean, have you ever seen a baby pigeon? Think about it. (laughs) 
Okay, obviously, right? Obviously, this is not true. Birds have not been exterminated and replaced by robot surveillance drones. And since it's Family Worship Sunday, we're here with our children. Let me just repeat that. Birds have not been replaced by robots, all right? It's, it's a joke. It's a hoax. Uh, technically, it's, it's satire, all right? And while it has, it's grown into this massive conspiracy theory meme, um, there's actually a point to it. Before I tell you that, though, um, I got to tell you, so I sent this video, I just sent it to Keith Johnson so he could have it ready to show this morning, and he, so he watched it, and he told me this morning, he said, last night I dreamed I went to that guy with a live bird and was trying to convince him that birds were real, um, so I just, I thought that was great, Keith, <laughs> uh, but, but there is a point to this whole thing, um, and in fact, it's been going on for several years, but this month, the founder of the movement, um, he did an interview with the New York Times, and he actually, for the first time, came out and said, no, he doesn't really believe that birds are robots, but the purpose is to help process what it's like to grow up in an age of conspiracies and misinformation. And, and so this whole thing, it invites people you know, inside of a, a conspiracy theory, and it serves as a, this elaborate you know, act as participants seize hold of an increasingly uh, ridiculous set of beliefs, right? And anybody can become a part of it. You just go online with a video of birds. Um, I saw somebody, um, so, somebody was recording a guy riding his bike, and he was being followed by crows. He's like, this guy's followed by crows everywhere he goes, man. They're watching him, you know, hashtag uh, birds aren't real, right? So anybody can go online um, with the birds aren't real hashtag to critique and express frustration at the conflicting, you know, truths in our culture today. And my, my message this morning is not about conspiracies. It's not... Um, but, but I will say this as an aside, right? As Christians, we're concerned about the truth, right? Um, after all, everything we do and live for ultimately rests on the truth claim that Jesus is the Son of God and that he rose from the dead. And so anything that obscures the truth or, or injures our credibility, I think should be of great concern to us. But this morning, um, I bring up birds aren't real more as an example of someone going to extreme methods, to get their message across. I mean, think about it for a second. This idea of, of critiquing you know, conflicting truths in our culture, it was significant enough that they created an entire movement. They're spending money on billboards. Um, they're touring, touring the country in the bird truther van, um, which, man, that's got to be uh, an experience, right? They've dedicated their entire lives to it. And while that may seem like a little much, it may seem over the top, the numbers don't lie. Their, their message has reached and connected with a lot of people. And not only that, the extreme nature of their method helps to demonstrate how much they care about their mission. I think that makes sense, right? I think it's fair to say that the more you care about your mission, the further you're willing to go with your methods. You're willing to work harder, sacrifice more, if you really care about it. And this idea is really where we've been um, the last several times that I've gotten to share on a Sunday morning. We've been in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. We've been looking at Paul's mission and particularly his method. He kind of lays it out there in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 uh, through 23. And Keith read uh, just a moment ago, and let me just highlight verses 22 through 23 again. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. His mission is in verses 22 through 23. For the sake of the gospel, he wants to save some. And his method 
is to become all things. I have a friend from college uh, back in the day, and he recently shared a story. Um, it, it was his first ministry experience uh, was two summers working as a youth ministry intern at a church. And he doesn't remember exactly how this happened, but, but somehow, um, maybe a sermon illustration or something, but it became known that he could make a good rooster noise. Okay, He's very good at making a rooster noise. And there was a woman at this church who was developmentally delayed, and the preacher came to my friend and, and said, hey, this woman, she would like to have a tape of you making animal noises. And so there he was, 20 minutes before a sermon, um, cock-a-doodle-doodling uh, like a rooster and mooing like a cow and grunting like a pig, braying like a donkey while the preacher recorded him. on a, It was like a tape recorder back then, I'm sure. And my friend said, reflecting on all this, he said, you know, sometimes becoming all things to all people might just mean you have to become a donkey. I love that story of his experience because his desire to share the gospel, it it trumped his own sense of pride, right? I think that both my friend and Paul would agree that the mission is so significant, so important, that sometimes even greater methods are required. You know, for Paul, becoming all things, it it was much more costly than braying like a donkey. It was primarily about surrendering his rights, about giving up and taking off and peeling away these things that were, that were so important to him. And he makes the scope of it clear in verse 19, shows us how far he's willing to go and what he's willing to give up when he says, though I am free, I have made myself a slave to everyone. Paul is willing to give up his, his freedom. It's a total surrender of his personal privileges, of his social and religious rights. You know, you know those are things, the pursuit of life and liberty, our, our rights are things that we treasure so deeply And those are the things that Paul named he will shed for the gospel. His freedom, Paul spends his life in prisons for the sake of the gospel. And his life, he gives that up as well. Traditionally um, killed, executed in Rome. It's an extreme method for a vitally important mission. And with mission and method discussed, we're left with one last piece of 1 Corinthians 9, 22 through 23. And that is magnitude. Magnitude. Uh, Magnitude means who is this all for? The question of magnitude is a question of scope. In fact, it may be easier to think of it as scope, um, but I already had mission and method. I want Barrett to be proud of me, so I worked really hard on that third M word, magnitude. (laughs) Um, but, But Paul spells out so simply and plainly the magnitude of his mission. That, that the scope of his mission is all people. Paul wants his life to be a witness of the rescuing power of Jesus from sin and death. And he is willing and ready to give up everything to make that happen. And he ultimately does. And he wants this new life, this limitless freedom for everyone, for all people. Paul sees in Jesus' death and resurrection the complete breakdown of barriers between people. It's present in our most foundational practices as Christians. You take baptism, for instance. In Galatians 3, 27 through 28, Paul says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul writes that baptism, this induction into citizenship and the kingdom of God, it breaks down and it transcends barriers. 
Paul says that you now belong to a kingdom, a nation where all people are welcome. And it's regardless of where you're born, how much money you have, whether you're a man or a woman, Hispanic, black, white, American or Iraqi, or a million other divisions we draw between people. The distinguishing mark of this kingdom is instead baptism into Jesus, which is open to all people. And if you're part of a kingdom that's for all people, then your witness, the method of your mission, should also be for all people. Paul sees it in communion as well. Later in 1 Corinthians, um, in chapter 11, Paul scolds the Corinthian church. He kind of gets on to them, and the issue is with communion, the Lord's Supper. We're told specifically the issue in verse 18 of chapter 11. He says, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And he's not happy about it. Uh, The specific division here seems to be between rich and poor. As Paul says a few verses later, that their practice despises the church of God and humiliates those who have nothing. You can pretty easily imagine this, I think. Uh, Meal practices have often been a divider throughout human history. You know, eating at an expensive restaurant demonstrates how much money you have. Serving exceptional food demonstrates your skill, your status as a homemaker. The place you sit at a table has often been an indicator of status. It's like the high school cafeteria all over again, right? Hoping there will be a place, a seat for you where you'll be allowed, where you'll be accepted. And regardless of what the actual dividing lines were, Paul makes it clear here that the Lord's Supper is a place where divisions do not exist. Whatever might keep you separated from others before you knew Christ, your your favorite team, your political party, once you come to the table, those lines between you and other Christians don't exist anymore. Not within the church. It's for all people. And the aim of Paul's witness, the magnitude of his mission, is all people. Paul says this idea is a key aspect of our most central practices as Christians. And I'm I'm sure this is not a a surprise to you, right? This is not new information. I mean, Barrett has been preaching through Ephesians since like before COVID, right? It sure feels like it. In a good way, in a good way. It's been great. And again, all throughout Ephesians, Paul is addressing this idea of unity over and over and over. He comes back to it. Everywhere you find Paul, he's talking about all people. And so while this may not really be a new idea to you, I think the implications for the way we live are profound. At the the end of the day, our lives are our witness. They reflect our mission, our method, and our magnitude, our desire to share the gospel with all people should be evident. And so to help us think about how that looks in practical terms, I have a couple of examples for us to consider before our time is up this morning. Um, one is particularly relevant. It's, it's, it's a Christmas story. It's the tale of the, uh, the Christmas truce in World War I. You may be familiar with it. Uh, There were Germans arrayed on one side and the French and British on the other. And no man's land stretched between the trenches the troops had dug. There were ditches filled with mud and vermin and worse. It was like this anthill, anthill network that the troops could move through to avoid being shot at. And on Christmas Eve, a truce had been called to honor the birth of Jesus. And the Kaiser sent Christmas trees to the German troops, the British and French sent gifts and care packages to their own. And then, shockingly, someone trotted a Christmas tree out into the no-man's land 
And before long, a soccer game had broken out, and gifts were exchanged between enemies. They sang Silent Night together. And the next morning, Christmas Day, these mortal enemies shared communion together, united in their common baptism, remembering the death of their Savior together. And perhaps there is there's something to celebrate. That in the midst of a tragic world, religious truth could temporarily suspend the violence of war. But with respect and humility, I'd like us to consider this moment because the very next day, they went back to killing each other. These are nominal Christians who'd just taken communion together. I mean, you heard the severe words that Paul had for the Corinthian church when the poor got bad treatment at the Lord's Supper. What would he say if he'd seen them kill each other? Maybe, maybe there are no words. Maybe he'd just weep. I mean, what does such a moment, such a witness communicate about the gospel? That we're a community of peoples reconciled to God through Jesus and thereby to one another? Or does it say, okay, you can have 36 hours to pretend that there are no divisions between those in Christ, but then we need to get back to the real business of noting where the lines between us are and killing those on the other side. Paul's commitment to being a witness to all people It's a life-changing, challenging commitment. I have another similar story. Um, It's from the first time I went to Croatia. We went to be part of this retreat that the churches had come together to put on. And aside from our little American team, um, there was only this one guy there who wasn't from Croatia. He was from Serbia. And strangely enough, he had brought his neighbor's children with him, two Serbian teenage boys who, who were not Christians. I'm not a great student of history, Um, But while I was there, I learned that Croatia and Serbia, once members of Yugoslavia, had fought against each other in a nasty civil war in the 90s. There's still a great deal of animosity between the countries to this day. The wounds and and the atrocities from that war are still fresh in people's minds. Well, the Serbian man, he kept getting constant phone calls, and he eventually shared what was going on with us. He told us that his neighbor, the mother of the boys, she was calling constantly, fearing for the boys' safety. She thought, she really believed that because they were Serbian and Croatia, they were in danger, that they might be harmed or worse. And I remember his response. He told her, I'm with my Christian brothers and sisters. There's nowhere safer for us to be. And what a wonderful witness that despite being citizens of opposing nations, nations who who hated one another, he was safer there because he was part of a kingdom that transcended national boundaries, a kingdom made up of all peoples. There's so much much division, right? I mean, you've no doubt heard someone say that exact same sentence. There's so much division. It's evident in a lot of places. The one that might come to mind first might be politics. Um, It it often seems that it's more than just disagreement, right? You hear people speak like with hostility and they're belligerent, cruel, can be mean-spirited. Um, we even see violence, right, between people with opposing ideologies. And it can be quite challenging for Christians to navigate this landscape in a way that witnesses and reaches out to all people. And I do not pretend to understand all the complexities of it. But I do think maybe it's helpful to remember how our story ends. 
Revelation 7, 9 through 10, you know, in Revelation, John has a vision of the story's end, of where we're headed. Like, this is going to be the end of our story. We know what happens. And he says there in, in 9 through 10 of Revelation 7, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All people, every nation, people, and tribe, Serbs and Croats, German and British, maybe even Democrats and Republicans, will all be part of the same kingdom one day. This passage also reminds us of something else that may be helpful as, as we think about the divisions present in our world. Um, I said the United States of America will not last forever, right? I mean, that's kind of the promise of where we're headed. Um, one day Jesus is coming to institute his kingdom and its fullness. If the USA is still around at that point, it won't be after that, right? Um, God will reign over all. Lee Camp is a professor at Lipscomb, and he writes, he writes this. He says, if this is true, then the hostile and belligerent partisanship among American Christians might be compared to a fist fight over table manners on the sinking Titanic. I don't know. That, that gave me pause. That made me think. You know, if the gospel isn't for all people, if it's not for all people, then it makes sense to, to demonize and vilify our ideological enemies. But if the gospel is for all people, then we love, we come alongside, we seek to understand those who we disagree with, not in a way that disregards God's truth, but in a way that lets us share that truth with others. The practice of all people. It's not just challenging for us today, I don't think, or, or for the soldiers of World War I. You know, even, even there in the New Testament, in fact, all throughout the New Testament, people are surprised by the inclusiveness of the gospel. People watched Jesus, and they couldn't believe he hung out with sinners, tax collectors, women. Peter, even. I mean, Peter. I, like, when I was a kid, I, maybe this is like like shows how I was like a, a nerdy youth group kid, but I had a favorite. Do you have a favorite apostle? I had a favorite apostle, and mine was Peter, right? Um, and Peter was my favorite apostle. Um, but man, even Peter himself, he struggles with accepting Gentiles as Jesus' followers. Eventually, he's called out by Paul because he isn't associating with Gentile believers. Almost everyone seems shocked by this idea of all people, wrestles with it, struggles with it. But I bet, I mean, if I had to guess, I bet I know who wasn't surprised by it. A young, pregnant, unmarried girl. Her blue-collar worker fiancé from Nazareth. I mean, can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? I bet they weren't surprised that Jesus ate with sinners or the Gentiles would one day come to put on Christ in baptism. Because they had seen both wealthy Eastern mystics and poor, homeless shepherds come to worship Christ as a child. Because they knew God had used them, two nobodies, to raise his son. Christmas, Christmas itself, reminds us that the gospel is for all people. A new year approaches. And if you're going to resolve yourself to, to anything, let me encourage you to commit to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians nine twenty-two. Whether, like Paul, maybe you're called to travel the world, 
preaching the gospel. Or, or, or maybe uh, he speaks to you when, when he writes to the church uh, in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians 4, he tells them to live a quiet life that wins the respect of those who don't know Jesus. Either way, we are called to be witnesses to all people, to become all things to all people, that by all means some might be saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you as you think about what you'll resolve to this year. So let 1 Corinthians 9.22 play a place in your commitment this year. Let's stand together as we worship.